So hello everybody and welcome to episode seven of Top Thelma and Tom Look Left. And uh, thank you for tuning in. It's really great to have you here and we're really excited about today's episode. And so I'll just uh, pass you over to Thelma to say uh, hello. Hi everybody and uh, morning Tom. Good morning Thelma. Uh, yeah, I, I, I can hear you, Tom. Yeah, yeah, good, good to uh, good to see you, Tom, and to hear your voice. And uh, hey, what about that tweet this week? Wasn't uh, that that, did you see it? Where that guy said, "Oh, I, I, I've been listening. I've been listening to uh, Thelma and Tom look left, and it's just like being down the pub and talking politics with my mates. I really enjoyed it, and I was so chuffed when I, when I read that because." That's the kind of vibe we've been trying to get, isn't it, Tom? Yeah, you know, that kind of informal chat with your mates, um, but putting the world to rights. And uh, yeah, I, I was I was just really, really uh, pleased when I saw that. Yeah, and, uh, me too. I think it looks like uh, we've got more listeners. Oh, we? oh, astonishing. Have you been looking at the number of people who've been so. listening? Uh, absolutely astonishing what's been happening. And uh, we, had a, we had an amazing um, plug on, on Twitter where they put our podcast on a list with some of the major uh, alternative outlets like, well, not Navarra, actually, uh, Canary and, uh, you know, all, all those. No, we're not good enough for that, I don't uh, think. No, <laughs> I mean, no, we're nowhere near. Uh, but one day, eh? Um, no, but to actually, <laughs> Tom, when you think about it, to, to actually be on a list... I mean, really, uh, you know, so, uh, yeah, really chuffed with the way it's going. And, and, and the figures rocketed. Yeah, the figures yeah. rocketed on uh, the back Especially of that. for something I enjoy so much as well. So yeah. I'll just quickly, on that subject of how the podcast's going. Yeah, great stuff, great stuff. On that subject of how the podcast's going, I'll just, um, there's some interesting stats that I thought might be, might be good to put out. That um, of, the, of the listeners that we've got, 61% are male and 31% are female, which surprises me really. I, I would have, I don't know. I thought it would be even at best, but anyway, there you are. So it's very male dominated listenership. The thing is, I, do, I don't know about podcasts. I mean, I don't know what, what it's like generally, you know, in terms of political podcasts or, um, you know, I don't know, podcasts on gardening, uh, you know, whatever. Um, you know, so I don't know what I don't know what the average is um, to compare, really, in a way. But as long as they're listening, I I don't care. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's great yeah. to have people uh, join us and, uh, and and give us feedback. That that's really good. Yeah. Yeah. And so, the other yeah, the other interesting another busy week. Yeah, the other interesting statistic was uh, until last week, until we had that major plug that changed everything. Fifty percent of our listeners were over fifty which kind of fitted in with the demographic of the presenters, really. But after that plug, it's all evened out, and we've now gone down to pretty much even across the age ranges, which, which I'm pleased about, too. Um, so, um, yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah. last well, week. Good. What I mean, we... I, think, I think the uh, intergenerational stuff's good. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, what, what a week. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I've got so much to ask about. Uh, obviously... Obviously, Thelma, you are hugely in the news at the moment um, with your candidate, candidacy for uh, Northern Independence Party. We touched on it a little bit last week, but I think we ought to do a little bit more this week because, uh, you know, it, it is happening. It's having a big effect. 
and um, you know it, some really positive stuff coming out of it. Yeah, and um, yeah, it's a it's a really really exciting time. And um, I've talked to you before, Tom, about there being a political vacuum at the moment, um, and especially when you look at the by election in Hartlepool. Um, and who will best represent the people in Hartlepool. And I think Labour, having no proper selection process and um, imposing a candidate uh, on the Labour members and indeed on, on the people of, of Hartlepool, um, meant, you know, democracy again um, has, has been eroded. And, and so I felt, you know, I, I really felt when I uh, connected with Philip Proudfoot, the founder of Northern Independence Party, um, that we we had a few Zoom meetings. Um, he talked me through the values and principles of of the party, and and I I just felt we were on the same page, and um, I felt duty bound as a democratic socialist to say, right, I, I'll do this. Um, and it's just taken off, Tom. I mean, it's just, there's such a brilliant team of people that are involved um, and so dynamic. And the, it's the social media that just seems to engage with, in particular, uh, I think, the younger uh, demographic. And um, But it's, it's not just that now. It's, it's everybody seems to be um, following it and... Uh, and and there's been these accusations of the stereotyping, you know, with the whippet theme yeah. and, um, it, you know, the Sean Bean and the, you know, the up north and all the rest of it. But actually, people get that um, irony. They get that um, sense of this humour, but there's a very serious message about that real north-south divide and the fact that, you know, with so many forgotten towns in the north and that control from westminster and it's almost it's almost like we're getting those you know crumbs from the table of westminster when it comes to finance and so we've been pro promised things for years and anybody who lives up north knows we've been promised the northern powerhouse the leveling up um you manage decline well i think it's managed neglect and um so we'll see what happens it's very yeah. exciting times i'm hearing that we are we are getting Labour nervous yeah. <laughs> because yeah. they thought they would impose the candidate and it would be a shoe-in. And um, I think if, if we do nothing else, Tom, it'll, well, it'll, it'll raise the profile of how people in the North are feeling about that lack of funding for education, health um, and transport, all the infrastructure. Um, and if it raises that profile... Um, and makes people talk about how it could be different, um, and and look at the federal model. Then I I think it you know it's done a, a very good job. So um, you know I'm, I'm out there to win uh, yeah. for Hartlepool yeah. um, to win that seat and to win for Nip. Um, but you know if if we don't, the conversations are being had um, and the northern voices are being heard. And yeah, I think, that's I, I, I think Thelma that that. There's more to it than you think, actually, because down south, and I'm on, I'm in the West Country, which is even further than down south, it's affecting everything on the left. And it's showing the left that actually we can do this and we can have a voice. And, uh, uh, and it's having a tremendous effect. And not only that, even better, it's showing us how to do it. 
you know, that that the graphics and the humour that are coming out of, of the Northern Independence Party are, are, are neutralising so much of the crap that the establishment throws at us. And, and it's shown us that that's a really good way of, of dealing with them. I mean, I'm sure they'll come back with more stuff, but, you know, for right now, they well, don't know how to <laughs> deal with it. I think, uh, yeah, I think that's starting already. I mean, uh, our, our guest today knows about this, you know, about the smears start, et cetera. And the, um, so we're thinking of setting up a band as well called uh, Smears for Fears um, because we thought, <laughs> you know, the, the thing that's coming through is that uh, northern grit and um, northern humour, really, that we can... We can laugh at ourselves. There's that self-deprecation there. Yeah. Um, that that anybody who knows Northerners or lived up north knows about it. And I think people are engaging with that. That yes, there's a serious message, but yeah, we can laugh at ourselves. Yeah. Um, but you know, whippets are part of the identity, the northern identity. Um, uh, you know, so and, and ferrets. Ferrets are coming on 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 board now. So Excellent. it's uh, yeah, Excellent. it's a movement that's growing in lots of ways. Yeah. I'm all in favour of the ferret as a symbol of political uh, <laughs> progress. Um, so, uh, yeah, Thelma, I, I just feel that the guy, whoever's in charge of those graphics, we, you know, we need them for the whole country, not just up north. And I think that's the feeling that the left have got, or at least I'm picking up, is that, you know, you're almost a prototype run for what we're going to do. And it's oh, really it's exciting. Yeah. It's really exciting, and we really so desperately needed something like this to happen. Well, uh, my my vision is, and I'm working with other smaller political parties, is to is to have that coalition of the left, and yeah. I think that's what's really worrying um, Labour in particular, um, because as I say, that that political vacuum was bound to be filled. I mean, they didn't want the left in Labour, so we left, and now we're yeah. doing something. They don't like it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so absolutely. I think, uh, <laughs> well, hats off to you, Thelma, and I can't believe my luck to have started a podcast with with someone who who turned out to be a candidate in a by election. I mean, it's amazing. And and you know, I I mean, realistically, I guess, like you say, you know, we're not going to talk about winning, although you say you're in it for winning. Uh, but you know, you, you you've had it's had such a huge effect, and and uh, yeah. So hats off to you, Thelma, and I'm thank I'm, you. Tom. I'm I'm proud of you, and I'm honoured to be your podcast pal. <laughs> oh, thanks, Tom. Right. That's so lovely. anyway, on that note, we'll we'll round up part one of the podcast, and we'll take a little break, and we'll see you in a minute back here with our our guest this week, Ash Sarkar. We're really excited to have her here. So see you in a minute. Thank you very much. So here we are, part two, and uh, I'm going to welcome our guest this week, Ash Sarkar. Brilliant to have you here, Ash, and I can't believe that we've, uh, you know, in such a short time, we've we've had so many great guests, and uh, this this is just so exciting for me. Well, uh, I'm so, just excited to be invited, so I turn up for the opening of an envelope. I'm really not high-quality <laughs> guest. Actually, Ash, I don't know whether I'm that flattered about that, really. Yeah, no, you shouldn't be. You really shouldn't be. I'm just incredibly needy and longing for human contact. <laughs> well, that's good. We'll take advantage of that to cycle people. Um, so, Ash, uh, I've got down here on my introduction to you, just in case there can't be anybody you know, listening to this podcast and doesn't know who you are, but if there is... Uh, Navara 
media journalist and um, and also somehow or other, I don't know how you did this, Moral Maze panel member. You've crossed over onto the BBC Radio 4 and getting away with it. And uh, I want to know, first and foremost, is that affecting your output? You know, the fact that you've got a job with what, you know, a lot of us see as the enemy, really. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been looking for a chance to sell out for years. So I grabbed <laughs> yeah. this with both hands. Um, I've been denouncing the left as much as I can, agreeing with Melanie Phillips an awful lot, just to try and get that cushy columnist job somewhere. Well, um, you know, it does happen, Ash. It does happen. <laughs> you know what? It, it really it really hasn't affected my outlook. Um, what I enjoy about the moral maze is that you can rather just be stuck within a current affairs box you can broaden out into wider questions of values and philosophy and culture and that's the really good thing about it but having been with Navarra for so long having been as part of the left for so long you do realize when you step into these spaces how weird they are so you've got a social strata of people who are very divorced and alienated from everyday life and they lead incredibly cloistered lives and they're set up as the moral arbiters for everybody else and they're trying to tell us all what a normal moral compass is whereas the lives they lead are incredibly weird um so i think as long as i keep finding the people i come across in media land kind of bizarre i think i'm doing just fine it's when i go oh, you guys are quite normal, that there's going to be a problem. Yeah, okay. I, well, it's it's fairly interesting to see how it goes. And I'm sure you'll be fine, Ash. I, I don't have any worries on that score. But, um, I, I, you know, there's always stuff on Twitter about people that are crossing the divide and, you know, selling out and da-da-da-da. Uh, I mean, Moral Maze is, is probably one of the more cool programmes on on mainstream Well, you know what? I'm not maybe. scared of Twitter. I'm scared of my mum. She would... <laughs> Kill me me if she thought that I was um, drifting to the right. You would never see me again. (laughs) (laughs) Never never cross your mama. Never. uh, My God. So I, I think um, Thelma and Ash, you've met before, haven't you? And you're you're, you're, your friends. Mm -hmm. So uh, anyway, I'll let you have a, a chat. Yeah, yeah, we had uh, Clive Lewis on last time, um, Ash, and uh, I warned Tom that, you know, he'd be a bit of a handful. He he was relatively quite well behaved and he talked to us about his his music at the beginning and I didn't actually understand what he was talking about, this music. I mean, I love music, but I I really didn't know what he was talking about, his favourite music. So, um, I, I'm I'm on a learning curve here, so come on. Let, let's ask you what what are you into? What's your oh, your favourite band? Well, you know what for me, because obviously I grew up in North London, and grime was just like an alien spaceship crashing into the neighbourhood. I remember the first time when I heard Dizzy Rascal's "Boy in the Corner," uh, when I heard Wiley's first um, mixtape. That. I'd never heard anything like it before because it sounded just like London. Everything else that had come out of London was sort of focused on trying to sound a bit like the Americans. And then grime just felt so authentic and rooted in where we were. So for me, like grime, 
drill rap love all of that but i also love a bit of soul some funk yeah. some disco ah, yeah. r&b yeah yeah like melissa melissa and i are into that Ooh, <laughs> she yeah. was one I of mean, our guests <laughs> i mean my mom my mom was again is probably the biggest influence on me but she used to because uh, she was a single mum, she couldn't go out clubbing. She had to look after the kids. So her and her best friend Koshi would have these parties for the single mums, where all the kids get shoved upstairs, and then it's the mums downstairs with the oh, rum punch. And the music was just fantastic. There was lots of Odyssey, lots of Marvin Gaye, mm-hmm. um, and that was where I sort of learned how to enjoy music was my mom you know mm. every couple of months mm. or so getting a bit pissed on ray and nephew oh. <laughs> really? so 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 has that been your lockdown listening then is that has that been have, have you been resorting to music because people have had different th- different ways of getting through the lockdown haven't they through music tv exercise whatever what's been your because i mean you're very busy on social media and all that you do with navara media but what's been getting you through as you as ash music a lot of that and um one of my favorite mcs from the kind of early days of grime called gets released a new album recently and it was sort of an artist who's reached you know, the full maturity of his powers. And so that was just incredible. I've been listening to it again and again and again. Um, And also cooking. I love cooking and I love food. So I've just been, um, at one point my partner was just like, can you stop? Like, I'm really worried about the state of my arteries. And I was like, no. Um, I find well, cooking can be really th- yeah I was just about to say yeah. the same thing yeah it's very relaxing especially with the music at the same time oh yeah you know, when you have a bit of a boogie in the kitchen <laughs> yeah I um yeah a big week in terms of race and equalities this week um and I saw a tweet yesterday though that when the report came out and we'll talk about that in a minute but and it said a brief glimpse at the comments on the Diane Abbott's or Ash Sarkis tweet will tell you more about racism than any government report will. That was on Twitter yesterday. Would, would you like to respond to that? Yeah, absolutely. That- um, it's a big week for the government uh, releasing reports, which essentially do the Groucho Marx thing of who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? Um, these are really exercises in self-exculpation. And also they're meant to be tools wielded by the right. So there have always been you know, there's never been a homogeneity of opinion amongst people of colour. And you've always had the Tony Sewells and the Manira Mezzas mm. who mm. have made a career in being a voice which has come from communities of colour, saying to the right, actually, it's all their fault. It's a cultural problem. It's poverty of aspiration. It's, you know, a failure to engage with the opportunities in front of them. And Boris Johnson's government... Uh, in a very strategic way, has worked out that if they elevate these voices to the status of a commission, you put out a report which is completely offensive. You know, it essentially says, look on the bright side of slavery. You know, it's part of the Caribbean experience. Unbelievable, unbelievable. Well, it's actually, Ash, a model for other white majority countries. Did you know that? Wow. It's as if the British... (laughs) began transatlantic slavery just for the satisfaction of abolishing it um you know there's also the thing but for me the core of the argument is interesting because it it doesn't 
it doesn't stand up to scrutiny. The way in which they explain enduring racial uh, inequalities is saying that people of color are haunted by the discourse of institutional racism. So it's like saying that global warming's happening because we're haunted by the memory of previous summers and that's what's, you know, heating up the planet. Um, it's, it's an absolute joke of a report. Um, the methodology is coming apart at the seams the more people poke into it. But it's a useful political weapon because then what it says is when you've got people of colour in particular who are citing research into racial inequalities, which can also explain why, why they continue to endure, then you can wave this report in their face and go, well, I've got this commission which says you're wrong and you're making it up and it's the politics of grievance. Um, mm. So it's a smart move by the government, a very smart move, but offensive. It, it, well, I mean, I, I, I'm co-president of uh, Kirkley Stand Up to Racism, you know, and so I'm engaging with others in the group, um, with uh, police officers, um, education officers of the local authority, just looking at, at structural racism, decolonising the curriculum. And all of these people have got action plans. There's loads of work being done with different agencies. So actually this report's saying, well, don't bother. You don't need to. <laughs> it doesn't exist, this racism. So, you know, it, it, it's just disingenuous. It's just just so so wrong and so i mean we've been told of it you know that there's the, the newspapers aren't racist uh, the police aren't racist our country isn't racist you know and i didn't understand gaslighting properly until i kind of thought about this report and i do get it now you know um and and just gives me hope when those kids in that pimlico school mm. uh, that went on strike you know quite rightly i feel as a former head teacher i'm saying that you know, to, to be able to wear, you know, Afro hair, you know, to, to have the hair however the hell they want, um, to wear the hijab, to do, you know, and I and, and they won, didn't they? I mean, the mm. thing is, they 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 uh, pulled back uh, the, the head teacher, et cetera, and, uh, and those kids have won. So uh, that gives you hope that future generations are going to say, you know, we're not we're not taking this. I think I think you, you've made such an important point because that's why the reports come out, which is social attitudes are changing in this country. They're changing for people of color and they are changing amongst you know white people too, and in particular younger white people. Um, there is a you know polarization of opinion on things like Black Lives Matter, but young people are firmly behind it, as well as of course the majority of people of color. You've got rising diversity and also you've got an increase in in political literacy when it comes to understanding and framing the, these issues. Mm. And between that and you know the conservatives having no way in to really the under 45s, they're panicking. So what they're trying to do is close down on discussion and that's why they're obsessed with what goes on in the media what goes on in universities it's all about controlling where knowledge mm. is produced and disseminated because they're, what they're trying to do is take away your ability to articulate what's wrong with society because if you do that then they're in trouble um and it is quite a departure from you know of course Theresa may was a bit deportation happy but she was caught in this weird place where on the one hand she would talk about, you know, the burning injustices and, mm. you know, commission all of these reviews, um, Angelini, Lamy and so on and so forth, the race audit. Um, 
but you know she wouldn't action them she would do some do nothing reviews to pander a little bit whereas boris johnson has said well why even pander why do that Mm. um we're going to get rid of even that bit of lip service so who do you think's running it uh, ash do you think you know like this this new well sort of new idea of saying look everything's fine you know they've done it with the club and common vigil you know or the police Mm. were fine they've done it with the bristol uh demos the police were fine they've uh, uh, um, you know, it's a kind of feels slightly like a new tactic to me that they're just. I, I just wondered because Boris Johnson isn't. He's not bright enough to kind of instigate that kind of thing, is he? I wonder if there's like, you know, the, the Tories they're so clever, aren't they, at kind of managing the the system. Mm. Uh, it's hard to believe that they can be like, you know, because the ones that you see out front look look a bit dozy to me sometimes well so i think that there's a few things going on one this is actually kind of an old tactic so you did have royal commissions set up to deal with you know colonialism and blah blah and the british do have a long tradition of marking their own homework do you know what i mean so you've got reports coming from within institutions which then exculpate those institutions so the reports like for instance um the mcpherson report following the murder and investigation of uh stephen lawrence um you know that was actually quite a rarity to have a report which came out and used the language which came out of anti-racist movements and anti-racist scholarship and was that critical of of a, of a government institution um you know something like the Leveson inquiry again a relative rarity in in our politics you know usually our inquiries are a bit more like Chilcot which is well yes you lied and did all these terrible things but nothing should happen um and of course Leveson was so dangerous that's why they scrapped Leveson too um so I think that this is actually a repackaging of something that's old what's new is the bringing in of the kind of spiked online crowd who take this very contrarian position who dress up reactionary ideas with progressive language and putting them right at the heart of government and so that's why a figure like Minira Mirza is so key um she's very very close to um Boris Johnson's fiance she was able to position herself quite well um after the departure of Dominic Cummings and that's why the cultural stuff was never going to go away because she was actually one of its chief proponents um And so by having people who come from this kind of intellectual circle, many of whom indeed are people of colour who've made a career saying institutional racism doesn't exist, it's in fact all cultural problems and a a politics of grievance, um, the new thing is bringing them in to say these very things. Because before, of course, you have had people of colour brought within the government to... um, to say these kinds of things. You had Sean Bailey, who was David Cameron's uh, police advisor for a while, but he was ultimately treated so poorly that he had to leave. Whereas Boris Johnson and the people around him have realized that if you cultivate these relationships and you really nurture them, um, you can you can get a lot more out of them. Yeah. She, she actually appointed her own people on the commission, didn't she? You, you would... I mean, you it's absolutely incredible, that, isn't it? Well, look, you, you've got you've got a very good career ahead of you if you're a person of colour willing to deny that racism exists. 
I was a mug. Mm. I was a mug. I tried yeah. to start my career by saying, actually, why don't we fix the things that are wrong in society? I could be a homeowner by now. I could be a homeowner by now if I just said, you know what? Nothing to worry about. Oh, um, just I, I must say to you, Ash, that I admire your bravery so much. And you do a little bit of that with your... Uh, Twitter and I mean your your following your numbers are amazing, amazingly high. Um, and I follow you myself because uh, you, you're good for me in the way that you fight back. You're just so brave, uh, and you just don't take any shit. Pardon my French; I don't usually swear, but <laughs> that's <laughs> but, really but, unusual from Thelma. <laughs> but but you don't, and um, and I think that brings me to you. You know my situation at the moment that mm. uh, I'm standing as candidate for. Northern Independence uh, Party and um, we seem to be having currently real success with that that fight back but using the kind of well it's northern humor that, that we're using <laughs> um, and, and engaging you know engaging with not just youngsters but you know the, the different uh, demographics and 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 social media just seems to be getting a, a serious message out but mm. through that fighting back but through humor and an irony really i mean so I, I i was absolutely waiting for you to talk about the northern independence party <laughs> because i think that there's some really interesting thing you things you guys are doing i also think there are some real challenges ahead so starting with the interesting things it, it is the way in which you have developed a tone which is kind of taking the piss kind of ironic but also takes politics itself very seriously and what it is you stand for and that is something which comes out of the language of the internet you know if you spend enough time on twitter you realize that what you've got to get used to is a very very subtle and sophisticated way in which people joke and are kind of always joking but also kind of not and you kind of have to steep your brain in it to to get it and i think that it is quite a powerful thing for a political movement to embrace it. And that is also the big difference between Corbynism in 2017, Corbynism 2019. 2017, you had this feeling of euphoria where mm. people just really went for it. They embraced the fact that, you know, there was a sense of novelty and there was a kind of culture around it, which was very ironic, very funny and optimistic in that way and 2019 I think because you know of those two years of media attacks the fact it was winter Brexit had been rolling on for so long you'd had all of that I mean you experienced all this firsthand but the real nastiness and viciousness within the party it felt that we went into that election with very somber faces and the euphoria had kind of I think ebbed away and I think that what the Northern Independence Party is doing is is trying to recapture some of that and and make it work in this like very geographically specific kind of way and I think that's interesting because the delusion I think that the left has and still maintains is that all that matters is policy it doesn't you need a values mm. and culture based container for it and when in 2019 we were like, but the policies are popular. The fact is that we couldn't get around the fact that the identity in the value shaped container had been so attacked and so traduced that it couldn't carry it. Whereas I think you guys are trying to work out what is this values based container going to be? What is the identity? 
um, you know, I'm interested to see whether it works or not. I think it's a useful experiment in, in trying to work out this, this problem. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think what you mentioned, the word euphoria, um, mm. it's the first time in a while, because obviously politically it's been a very mm. difficult time for me leaving the Labour Party. Um, after 40 years, you can imagine how it, how it felt when I finally left. But this last few weeks, um, I felt that euphoria again. Mm. Um, for, you know, for the first time in ages, that feeling of hope, because what I'm doing to be honest, is for your generation, Ash. You know, that what I'm doing is, because I, I see that it's your generation. You mentioned about becoming a homeowner, etc. I know all the things that I took, and Tom the same, you took for granted full employment, being able to own your own home, free education, all of those things we benefited from that aren't happening for, for the younger generations. And so I, I feel, as a socialist, um, that's why I had to step up. Um, and when I met Philip Proudfoot, the founder of uh, Northern Independence Party, we just hit it off because it's that mm. values base, you know, just how I feel um, with Jeremy and John and, and you know, and all, all the former front bench. Um, and so that that euphoria is there. And I think that using the social media platform, that uh, self-deprecation, that self-mockery mm. that Northerners are so good at. And people, you know, down south, people, we've even got members in Ireland now, you know, um, <laughs> Cornwall, all over the place, uh, are just engaging and saying, can't we free the south as well? You know, it's kind of, um, and, and, and that messaging is getting out there. And if we do nothing else, if we do nothing else, we get that voice of, northerners living in those forgotten towns having nearly 11 years of austerity and underfunding and sick of westminster having the control um that that's what it's about really um but yeah that that joy has come back yeah. into the campaign for me and it's and it's something which i think you know is is so important it's so so important because those somber faces in 2019 it was just you know, I, th I think it was kind of inevitable it would end up in that place. And it's not it's not the fault of the movement. It, I think it's a response to everything that happened. But it did just mean that, you know, Boris Johnson could take the ground of optimism. And mm. actually, there was a strange sense in which the imagery he'd use, it was so silly, like driving a bulldozer mm. through a wall that says, get Brexit done. He mm. wasn't taking himself so seriously. And, you know, the long face our nhs he was really silly now mm. he also doesn't offer anything serious to people mm. but i think that after two years where politics had become so awful people responded mm. to that and and yeah. and we didn't quite pick that up or we didn't know how yeah. to how to yeah. find our footing again um but i think that strategically this is interesting i think that you know what do you think From, the future is for the left, Ash? What What do you think? I mean, we've got our new party. Yeah. There's a vision there. I think it, it's exciting. But what, what do you think, in or out of Labour, what, what do you think that future well, I think might that, be? Like, my, my read on the Northern Independence Party, my take on it, is that it's an attempt to UKIP Labour. So you have an outrider party um, to the party's left in this case. For the Conservatives, it was to their right which can threaten Labour in key marginal seats and forces um, a reorientation in policy, in mood, in direction. 
Um, and I think that having tried to obviously shift labor by, you know, capturing the leadership by mistake, essentially, and, and that couldn't sustain itself, um, that there's there's reason to try this from, from a left-wing perspective. The challenge is money, because Nigel Farage didn't really have to succeed electorally because he had wealthy donors and wealthy backers. And there was an understanding that you're not going to win seats in a general election. The point is to eat into that conservative vote enough that you start really getting them worrying about how to recapture um, these lost voters, how to win over the confidence of their grassroots again. Whereas when you're a left-wing movement and you're funded as you should be, as you should be, by your membership, there's a problem because there's an expectation of success which is measured in seats. So that's, the, I think, the structural challenge facing the Northern Independence Party, as well as the stuff about, you know, um, what what is the real political composition of the seats that you're standing in? Are there enough young people who are going to be engaged enough to carry you over and all that kind of stuff? Um, but the structural problem is that one of the left are going to want you to succeed quickly. I also mm. think the Northern Independence Party, you man are bad at expectations management. You need to start <laughs> you know, managing the expectations down so everything can look good. Well, I, um, yeah, I, I can't ever go, go into anything without I'm committed, absolutely committed wholeheartedly. I mean, my, my personal vision really is about a left coalition. Mm. That's the way we can win. I, I think in the future, I think, a, you know, a, co- a coalition uh, there. And I think anything which, you know, Labour has a tendency of saying to its electorate, whether it is, you know, older voters in the north or whether it's BAME voters in urban centres, whether it's young voters, has a habit of saying, well, you don't have anywhere else to go. And Mm -hmm. the problem is, is, well, yes, they do. They can stay at home. They can go green. They can go for Northern Independence Party. They can go for Brexit Party or the Conservatives. Um, there are all sorts of things people can do. And so anything which I think startles Labour out of that complacency and gets them thinking, as you said, amongst more coalition building lines, I think is great. Yeah, great. Thanks. That's interesting because uh, Navarra as uh, sort of a... Um, pretty constant in their loyalty to the Labour Party, aren't they? Uh, And an awful lot of us that have kind of came into the Labour Party because of, well, basically because of Jeremy, I guess, and and left. We were only in the Labour Party a short time. We've got no loyalty to the Labour Party at all. Uh, I haven't. I I detest them, actually. And um, and I see no future at all. I can't I can't find a way of seeing how the Labour Party are ever going to come up with the goods. Um, So that's something I'm interested in listening to you speak about. it's, it's interesting that you say, oh, you know, Navarra has been pretty consistent in its support of the Labour Party. That's not true at all, because when we were founded, it was out of a frustration fundamentally with the Labour Party. We weren't founded under Jeremy Corbyn. We, you know, we weren't supposed to be, you know, Jezza's Pravda. We were founded <laughs> when, when Miliband was leader and we came out of the student movement. All of us are kind of, you know, recovering anarchists. We've still got, we've still got one, one uh, practicing anarchist. Um, but we, we came out having seen what was going on in Greece, in Italy, in Spain, um, 
we looked at labor and our prediction was, you know, pacification, the kind of decline and demise of the center left. Now, then we had to reset our analysis because along comes Jeremy and along comes John and along comes Diane and, 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 you know, this, this cast of characters. And then Keir Starmer luckily comes along and, and proves our first um, assessment of pacification right. So we, we don't have a kind of uncritical, and it also wasn't uncritical under Corbyn. There were lots of things where particularly on policing, on drugs policy, on immigration, um, where, where we disagreed and, and pissed off people within the leader's office who were like, why are you saying these things? And it's like, well, because we're not your media outlet. We're, we're, mm. we're the left's media outlet. And that's the difference. Um, but certainly we, we've never been tribalists in that way. We stand for a set of politics. We don't stand for a party. Yeah, I hope I didn't touch raw nerve there. I didn't. Oh read. no, no, no! I like having a good fight. I like having a fight. I, I, I liked the way you challenged. I can't remember. Was it Times Radio when you were introduced as a left-wing journalist? Oh, it was the BBC. I oh, was at the BBC. Sorry, yeah. Um, yeah, I was so pleased you challenged that. You know, um, because it is true they don't introduce a, a far right journalist, do they? Mm-hmm. It's kind of and and you know, when I was an MP, I used to get so weary with you know, being described as hard left and yeah. uh, comrade, and you know that it kind of. I mean, I don't mind being labelled yeah. a bit. You know, if it far left means that I want RNHS and uh, free lifelong education, you know, then then call me hard left. I'm fine with that. But it, it is just the way it is, isn't it? And it's it's just that tone that's set. Mm. Um, and I was so glad when you you actually call that out. And I just wish I would just wish more socialists would. Um, I don't think we fight back enough. Um, you know I don't what? know. It's hard. You know, it's hard. Um, I mean, I think one the thing that we've all got to realize is you don't win the argument, you win the framing. And mm. so it's about trying to think about where your leverage is to shape the framing. And it's something which the right have understood very, very well. Um, they don't care about the content of that racism reports but they won on the framing of it and so that's good enough um so i think that's the thing that all of us have got to get into the second thing is you know the left feels so precarious in media spaces and it's Mm. different for me because i've been i've been doing this for a while now but certainly at the start i felt like i'm never going to get invited back again this is my one chance to make an argument which isn't heard very much and then you you don't push back because you're wondering about how am I putting my ego before the needs of the movement to have this airtime and it's always a battle but now I've established a bit more I feel confident to do it when it comes to fighting back I think that that was one of the the fatal errors of Corbynism and this is where you do have to say you know this was on Jeremy which is he was instinctively a consensus politician even though he polarized and he had a polarizing effect too nice his heart was a consensus politician (laughs) and so he didn't realize that he should have nipped certain things in the bud and that by fighting back for himself as an individual that he was standing up for the movement you know as a whole and i think he came to that realization too late and it did mean that the horse had already bolted um and that's why I think the left does need to see people 
standing up for themselves because it's not really about them as an individual it's about you know standing up for the left and the legitimacy of the left as a political actor now that doesn't mean that you get into I think which is very damaging mindset which is no criticism everybody agree and also I mean come on we know there are some real shits on the left as well um you know and there's no defending you know bad behavior harmful behavior you know a culture of criticism is healthy but you can't just roll over every time the sun takes a pot shot at you you can't do that no no it's it, that's right and i think going back get another plug for the northern independence party um we're not PPP. rolling over either <laughs> we're not rolling over either and, and mm. just speaking about um media and uh, navara media and uh, socialist telly that um i've been on a couple of times it, i think that's really positive Mm. um and and having those left platforms tom and i have talked about this before in previous episodes um and there's a it's a really a growing uh area and uh becoming more popular um well, what's the future do you think for navara media well i think that strategically one of the things that we've kind of collectively agreed is do you want to know who our single biggest inspiration is go on rupert murdoch uh. Mm. And I'm not joking. I'm not joking. Because what Rupert Murdoch did is, as well as sort of buying up, you know, other media outlets and sort of digesting them into his, you know, huge global system, Mm. um, what he did was he identified a generation and he identified the economic circumstances which shaped the politics and the outlook of that generation. And he said, I'm going to serve you and be served by you. And that's what he said. And he's followed that generation all the way. And that's what the foundation of News Corps is. And for us, it's not a generation of upwardly mobile homeowners who have, you know, benefited from full employment, free education, the selling off of public assets, house price inflation, blah, blah, blah. Ours is like, are you broke? Are you in debt? Well, you're our people. Um, and and speaking to that generation. And so our, our sense of, of what we do is we follow you all the way. You know, we mm. follow you all the way. We, we take you from, you know, you've come out of university with student debt or you've left school and you are just at such a disadvantage in the labor market. You know, you're having to um, take on a huge amount of personal debt just to cover your cost of living. You've got a choice between do you leave the town you grew up with which has got limited employment opportunities to come to london where you're going to be poor you're going to be part of the working poor yeah. even yeah. if even if you get like yeah. yeah access to fantastic oat milk based lattes you're still going to be part of the working poor mm. um these are the people that that we're speaking to because this is that's who we are that's who all of us are um so in a way for us the future of navara is that Rupert Murdoch strategy, even if it's not Rupert Murdoch money. Oh, well, more power to your elbow, I think. I think you're doing a great <laughs> job. Great job indeed. And uh, sorry, sorry. Go on, Tom, after you. I should say, Ash, do you think that um, the left media, which are, the reason that I start, I, I asked Thelma to, you know, help me start this podcast was because I, I saw basically that, the media run the show, really, or mm-hmm. at least 
someone through the media runs the show and the left media was you know nowhere really from in in the latter bit of the Corbyn years and um, I just thought look we've got to get our acts together here and pr provide something that can get a narrative out there that is in some way can make some kind of dent in this narrative would like what you were saying about when you go onto the BBC and the, and that whole kind of story that they tell the left media somehow have got to do something pretty spectacular to make some kind of chink in that way of thinking it's it's I just feel like it might have to be a bit more than a few really good outlets like Navarra, Socialist Telly and all those people I mean brilliant I, I love them to bits and a few podcasts you know uh, and a few good really good blogs I'm wondering if somehow we can move that on or whether whether this is how the left media is well, I mean, I think there's there's multiple aspects to it, right? You never fight solely on one front. So one is, of course, um, generating plurality. So generating, you know, pluralism by setting up these alternative outlets. The existence of Tribune, for instance, when it popped up, did for a time force a bit of a change in the new statesman. So these things also have an effect on, on establishment and legacy media outlets as well. The other thing is that you do have a generation of young, very talented writers and broadcasters who are making their way through either the freelance pool or some are just starting out as producers at Sky or producers at Channel 4 and all of these places. One of the problem is, is that you've got a generation of, you know, Gen Xers and baby boomers who are essentially maintaining a stranglehold on the good jobs. That is something which happens. And you can see when you've got somebody... Um, you know, who, whose politics are not my politics, but he is trying to tell a more critical story, like Lewis Goodall, who uh, moved over to Newsnight, having previously been at Sky News. He faced ferocious attack um, by the right and, and by voices emanating from within the government because they knew that he wasn't going to be um, supine when it came to coverage of, of the government. But also, and this is just a, a rumour that I've heard, is that he's not been fully embraced by, you know, the lobby, that, you know, echelon of journalists who are very, very close to Westminster. So I think that, you know, it's hard, but there does also have to be projects within legacy outlets, which do still command the much bigger audience shares um, to, to get more critical independent voices i'm not just talking about are you on the left or are you not it's are you willing to speak truth to power the sad fact is is that a lot of journalists aren't and that there is a culture amongst journalists where they can't even defend their own industry against mm -hmm. the government or against the institutions of state i was shocked last weekend when a mirror journalist was assaulted by police in bristol and on twitter you did have journalists particularly from the mirror saying this is awful this is disgusting but the coverage of those mm -hmm. protests was still outrageously stacked in the police's favor you had sky news telling lies about what had happened saying that you know windows of the police uh, station had been smashed up they hadn't been and i just thought this industry which reacts with so much 
you know, it reacts so explosively if Owen Jones dares to tweet something critical about how the industry works. Suddenly, when you've got journalists being assaulted by police and, and a press card is supposed to be recognized by every single police force in this country, they don't know how to defend themselves against that kind of misuse mm. of power. So that worries me. That really does mm. worry me. And that means mm. that I do think you need more people within those legacy outlets trying to do things differently. It's not about, do you agree with me on, on, on nationalizing public services and the public utilities? It's about, are you willing to, you know, take on powerful people? Yeah. And fight the propaganda. Let's be honest. Mm. We're talking propaganda, aren't we? Mm. Yeah, really. I just uh, I'm fascinated by um, uh, I don't know if this is PC or not to say this, but I mean, you're you're a Muslim girl. Mm -hmm. And just from the little bit I've heard about you speaking today, your your upbringing is pretty unconventional in those terms. Am I right? Well, you say unconventional, but, you know, it's it's a religion of, of a billion people. And within that, you have so many traditions, so, so many traditions of you know, feminism, of progressive jurisprudence, you have Muslim socialist movements, Muslim communist movements, and things really differ according to context. Um, You know, because of the sort of balance of power within the Gulf states, you do have an association with what does it mean to be Muslim? It's to what extent do you adhere to a version of Sunni Islam, which has been exported by Saudi Arabia? And also, you know, that form of Islam was encouraged by... um, you know, Western powers as a way to undermine the power of pan-Arabist and socialist movements in in the region. Um, But you always had other ways of seeing things. You know, for instance, in Iran, you've got traditions where you do depict the prophet in art, in religious art, which of course in Sunni Islam, they say is Nunu. Um, So for my own family, which everyone has mixed marriages, by the way, because we just like the variety. So my grandmother was born... Well, she was born as a subject of the British Empire. Um, but when she was born, she was born a Hindu. She was raised by uh, her father, who was a communist and, and part of the Quit India movement. Um, she converted to Islam when she married my grandfather. My mum was raised Muslim-ish, but within a very progressive household. Uh, she married and subsequently divorced my Hindu father, now married to a Church of England raised atheist from Yorkshire. Um, you know, I, I identify with Islam. There's something cultural or spiritual there for me, but my sister doesn't. Um, and we're just very, we're, we're part of, you know, there is pockets in the subcontinent where there is a lot of social mixing because there are so many religions, so many languages And while there is, of course, a lot of sectarian tension, there's also inevitably um, mixing and integration. And so that's kind of the bit that my family comes from. So it never felt unconventional. For me, the thing that always felt weird was when I met people who didn't have that upbringing and I was like, ooh. Wow, interesting. It's funny being uh, like being a white guy, uh, old white guy who always, I've always lived in the country and, um, I've never really been in cities and stuff, and mm. I've I've never really met uh, big big numbers of mm. I don't know what even you would call Indian people or 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 black people, or whatever. Mm. And um, Pe- people of color, Tom. That's is that what I'm supposed to say? <laughs> Pe- people of color is the is the group. 
right? Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, within the group of people of color, you know, I'm Bengali, for instance, because right. my family we're from both sides of the border because the border just got slapped down by the British and yeah, yeah. <laughs> didn't make much sense. Um, so I'm both Bangladeshi and Indian. So I tend to say Bengali, but people of color is the way to say that. I'm okay, cool. yeah. well, Isn't it true in that latest report that came out recently that, um, that they, they're saying that we shouldn't use the term Bane? No, not anymore. Yeah. Anymore. I mean, I always pronounced it Barme, like Lame. <laughs> oh yeah. That sounds much <laughs> more To make cool. it a bit more yeah. fancy. Yeah, they are. They are. Um, I mean, again, it's the the grand old British tradition of divide and conquer. So what Mm. they've done is they've taken a demand which has come from some sections of the anti-racist movement to get rid of BAME because they feel that it um, elides very key differences in outcomes between different minority groups. They've taken that but they've also said, hey, institutional racism isn't a thing. So, mm. you know, BAME is imperfect. It's, com- mm. it's completely imperfect, but it never stopped anyone from doing more uh, precise data gathering. The government does it all the time. So that's how we know that there are differences mm. in attainment between, um, you know, Bangladeshis and Indians or, you know, uh, Black Africans and Afro-Caribbeans. Um, that's how we know. Uh, BAME also emerged as a government term as a way of undermining what at the time was an anti-racist movement organizing on the lines of political blackness. Of course, political Mm. blackness is, again, imperfect. It elided certain key differences, but it was an organizing term which tied together um, essentially former subjects of empire, formerly colonized Mm. peoples, and it was useful Mm. in that way. so I'm very skeptical of this change and I'm very skeptical of getting rid of BAME because I think what it indicates is a way to pit minority groups against one another and have us thinking that, well, because there are differences in outcome between Bangladeshis and Indians or, you know, Afro-Caribbean people and people who whose heritage is from West Africa, um, that we're not part of the same struggle against white supremacy, mm. but of course we are. Mm. Yeah. That's brilliant. Thank you, Ash. That's brilliant. Man. It's so nice to talk to you about that. And, no, um, it's lovely. I, I love um, I love talking with you guys. Like Thelma's my favourite. <laughs> the only head teacher I've not been scared to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> That was so funny. I mentioned Clive before, and he said when when I worked with him in the Shadow Treasury team that um, I was his head teacher, and uh, and he used to be outside my office nearly every day in trouble. He was kind of joking about it, but uh, yeah, no, yeah. I, feel, I feel I've been pulled in after being disrupted. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. It's just great to see you. Great to see you, Ash. Yeah. No, thank you so much for having me on. And also, this is such a great podcast. The the seriousness with which you treat ideas and politics is just lovely to see yeah well thank you that's really nice from you that's really good <laughs> i think one of the, the the aims as well is which i've mentioned before but melissa ben talked about a, a safe space for the left mm. um and and i experienced it uh, on a micro scale i suppose but when i was an mp of that being tense when you were being interviewed because you knew you it, well if it wasn't live it was going to be edited in a way that was going to misrepresent what you were saying um or be critical or be a sting in the tail or but you weren't allowed really to to feel comfortable um expressing um your values your policies whatever 
Um, and I think what we want is a space for people, either the MP politicians or people on the left, to to be them themselves and and to feel comfortable in in expressing um, what they believe. And uh, I, f I feel as if what we are getting are the real people, you know. Yeah. Um, and that that's that's important. Um, having had that experience myself of uh, of of not people not really seeing who I was when I was mm. interviewed. Um, so, yeah, well, thank, thanks ever so much, Ash. It's been great yeah, having thank you. Thank you for having me. So before we go, I just want to say one thing that I've, that I've meant to say last week and totally forgot. Um, it's, I, I just want to nail my colours to the mast on Kill the Bill. It, it's something so close to my heart and, um, and it's heartbreaking for me to see all these young people just being smashed to pieces by the cops. It's not right, and I don't care if they've said it's all in, you know, because they're breaking the law and blah, blah, blah. That's that's crap. It's not right to do that to young kids. So uh, as it's not right to do it to women when they're at a vigil in Clapham Common, and, and it, I'm not going to, I'm going to say it's not right. And yeah. yeah. So anyway, sorry I had to get that off my chest. It's been really bugging me. No, I agree, Tom. Yeah, it's all right to protest peacefully um and uh yeah what, what's happening we've got we've got to take a stand i think yeah so anyway thank you so much for listening it's been a great podcast it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you ash and as always lovely to be with you thelma and have a really good week thelma on the whatever you call it campaign trail <laughs> we're right behind you and uh, uh i've changed the uh, logo on our twitter account um and um yeah Come on, Thelma. And uh, yeah, and if you enjoy the podcast, uh, please remember to uh, subscribe and tell your friends. And um, yeah, if ever you've got anything to say to us, our email address is Thelma and Tom at gmail.com. Now I'm going to hand you over to Thelma to say <laughs> goodbyes. Yeah. Oh, well, thanks, Tom. And thanks very much, Ash, for, for joining us. And thank you all for listening. And I'll leave you with the words of Atticus Finch from the novel To Kill a Mockingbird, one of my favourites. You never really understand a person until you consider things from their point of view, until you climb into their skin and walk around in it. Solidarity. <laughs> <laughs>